Again, we are delighted that we can take another opportunity to sit, Lord, before you and have your word brought to us. Uh, Father, we ask that you might uh, wash us and cleanse us and prepare us to receive it, uh, Lord, with joy and thanksgiving. Lord, that we would embrace uh, the doctrine uh, set forth in Psalm 8, and it would truly be uh, our delight, Lord, that we might learn to uh, praise you, uh, strengthen our praise for you, and that we might learn to see, Lord, your excellence in ways that we have yet to see it. Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, Psalm 8, uh, this psalm is a psalm of praise. It is praising God for his work of creation. Especially, it is a, it's praising God for his work in creating man. So, with that being said, hear now the word of the Lord. Uh, for the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you should take thought of him and the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All oxen are all sheep and ox and all the beasts of the fields the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, we continue to make our way through the Psalms and it seems that these Psalms are at least finding a place in uh, many hearts and minds as far as just taking um, refuge in the Lord, in his word, um, it seems that the testimony that I'm receiving is that the Lord is really ministering to some of you through these psalms. I'm not sure if I'm going to get all the way through this psalm as I have some of the others. It's not because, I mean, it's not as long as the last one we looked at, but at the same time, it's just the themes and the doctrines that we're going to begin to, to look at. Well, as I said, Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. It starts off praising the Lord. And it ends praising the Lord. It, it is sandwiched in verse 1 and verse 9 between two benedictions, two praises. And everything in between is telling us informing us on why we should be a people, well, 
praising God. And now if you look at the psalm itself, I mean, you would think a lot of psalms are praises to God. And that is true. We have 150 psalms. But as we've already looked at, uh, the theme of, well, most of the psalms that we've already looked at up until this one have been laments. They have been psalms that address struggles, psalms that uh, addresses uh, persecution and taking refuge in the Lord and, and fleeing one's enemies and looking for protection from the Lord. And, and here we have a psalm of explicit praise and thanksgiving. And so I think we need to spend a little time thinking through what it is to praise the Lord. In fact, that is sort of my first point, and that is praise is becoming of a Christian. Praise is becoming of a Christian. We see in verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Now, look at verse 2, because not only is praise becoming of Christians, right? We're Christians. We profess to be Christians. We pro pro profess to believe in Jesus Christ, to serve him, to uh, be his disciples. But notice in verse 2 that God has ordained praise from even the weakest of his creatures from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy a and the revengeful cease. It, God is so worthy of praise that he has even ordained it from infants and nursing babes. Now that's literal. He's, this is not an exaggeration. God has ordained it. He's decreed it to be so. He has put praise upon the lips of even children. Now think about that. Now praise is not something, well, praise is something that is both natural and practiced. We naturally, when we become Christians, want to praise God. We want to bless his name. We want to sing praises to him. We want to honor him. We want to ascribe glory to him, not because it adds anything to him. We know better. We're not adding anything to God. We're not making his day even. God lacks nothing. God needs nothing. And yet, at the same time, in the same light of that truth and theology, God has still ascribed and ordained praise from his children. God commands it. God is worthy of it. And God takes delight in it. Even though our praise does nothing for him, it doesn't make God who's having a bad day have a better day. He's not like we are in that sense. And at the same time, this may be unfathomable for us because we're limited. We're limited in our understanding and how we understand God. And he's infinite, remember that. 
And in that sense, he's infinite in all of his attributes and all of his qualities. They are infinite as well. They are without limitations. And so God has, he's worthy of it, but even so God has ascribed it. That is, even if God had never commanded it, it'd be a command. How so? Because he's so far superior and better than anything around us that we already naturally have a tendency to, to exalt and honor people that are better than us. I think that's one reason. I mean, we have all of these different um, ways of judging uh, who's better. I mean, you, I mean, sports. What's sports about? Competition. Who's better at that sport than the other? What team is better? What person is better? And it could be anything. And yet, when there's someone that rises to the top of all of that, that person is honored, usually with some championship or a trophy or uh, articles are written about them. I mean, there's uh, endorsements given to them. But I mean, that's just in a, a consumeristic whatever cultural way we can understand these things, but God is far above. He's superior. He's majestic. He's above his creation. And though he's being ascribed, though God is being, being praised here, O Lord, our Lord, two names are used for God in this psalm. There is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, right? That's the covenant name of God. That's the God that comes and establishes a relationship with us. Yahweh. But there's another name when he says the word Lord. Notice one's capital and one's not. Notice in your translations as they try to distinguish those two things. Yahweh is always capital. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But notice our Lord, Lord is only the initial L is capitalized and the rest of it is not. That's the word Adonai. Adonai. Authority, his worthiness, his, his authority. He is the master, if you will. He's the head. He is Jehovah, our Lord. He is the Jehovah, our boss. Jehovah, our master. He is Je Jehovah, our leader. How majestic is your name in all the earth. God has many names in the Bible. The reason God has many names in the Bible and the reason God is ascribed in many ways is because he's infinite. He's all, he's infinite and glorious in such a way that it takes many names and many ways to describe him to us, for him to be described to us. We are to take all facets and aspects of it. I mean, there are books written just on, I know in one of the old Puritan books, um, the, what we call the um, uh, self-interpreting Bible. I believe it was like a six-volume set. I keep, don't hold me to that fact, but it was like a, a four- to six-volume set that was put together for families. And it had, all, I mean, it's like a small seminary. It had all of these 
charts and tables and facts and, and articles on various aspects of the Bible that families, it was designed and given to families, published for families so that they could sit around and, and read and worship the Lord and learn about him. You say, well, we go to church to praise God. That's true. We do go to church to praise God, but we don't just learn to praise God in church. The proper way is to praise God every day, is to praise God in our homes, is to praise God privately, is to praise God privately, not only personally, but privately in homes and families and whatnot. So that when we come to church, how natural is it for us to praise God? Now, I talked about praise is becoming of a Christian, and, and there's really two aspects of this. Number one, we praise God. That's a given. But secondly, we ought to improve in our praising of God. Now, what do I mean by that? How do we improve our praising of God? How, how, well, I want you to think about worship. Worship is not a passive activity. I know in many situations it's taken that way, but it's not. You're sitting there, you think I'm passive, you're preaching to me. That is true, I am preaching to you, but you're not passive in the preaching. You are actively listening to the preaching. You're actively praising God simultaneously while you're hearing the preaching. You are thanking God for these truths. When these truths leave my mouth, so to speak, and enter into your ears, you are in at the same time, because we are so fearfully and wonderfully created in the image of God, that you're auto, you, you can even a millisecond, you're praising God. You're thanking God for the quality, the, the sovereignty, the attribute, that whatever is being presented and laid before you. You're praising God for all those things. You should never sit passively back as if somehow this is over, we're just leaving. No, this is an engagement. It's an engagement. That's why there's a day ordained for public Worship and prayer, the Lord's day, there is an ordained day. There's an ordained engagement that happens. God comes to meet with his people and his people assemble together to meet with God. And so not only naturally we say, oh, we praise God, we lift our voices, we use our voices and we sing his praises, but yet we improve upon that by how? By learning what that means, learning the names of God, learning what God has done, learning how infinite in qualities he is. And this Psalm highlights a couple of those things. So, All the 150 Psalms are just not praises. About a third of them are. And the rest of the Psalms are laments, are prayers, are, um, you know, calling upon God to come and, and take care of his, his adversaries, his enemies and ours, right? God's enemies should be our enemies, right? Because as 
being in his image and doing his will, we are certainly going to have those who hate him hate us. And that's what Jesus told his disciples in John 15. They're going to hate you because they hate me. But you love one another. You are in union with me together. And you love one another and your love for one another will be a sign that you are all my children and that you are in me. So, let's talk more about this praise. I'm going to go through a couple of... um, places in our confession of faith that highlight praise. And that'll just, number one, it'll set the standards, our confession before you. I always want to encourage you to study those, um, become more familiar because you need to improve. You can improve upon your praise, but you need to also understand what things incite praise. What are those things we ought to think about that incite us to praise God. Well, the confession and the, can help in this area. And in fact, let me just bring out the first one. The first one is related to the teaching of the Lord's Prayer, go working through all those petitions. If you've never read through the shorter or the larger catechism, we're focused on the larger catechism here But if you've never read through that, you should. You should at least do it a couple of times a year, if not more frequent than that. But because, again, it is setting the Word of God before you. It is setting God's Word before you. It's helping you understand the Word of God. It's not usurping the Word of God. It doesn't take the place of the Word of God. It sets God's Word in front of us so that we can learn it accurately and properly so that then we can fashion our habits to that. Question 196, it says, what does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, teaches us to enforce our petitions with arguments, which are to be taken not from any worthiness of ourselves or in any other creature, but from God. Now listen to this phrase. And with our prayers to join praises, ascribing to God alone eternal sovereignty, omnipotency, and glorious excellency in regard whereof he is able and willing to help us. So we by faith are emboldened to plead with him that we would and quietly rely upon him and he will fulfill our request and to to testify this, our desire and assurance, we say, amen. Now, you may not have never thought that that word amen was so full of, of, of glory, right? 
But it is that when we say amen, we are ascribing that God has the glory, the majesty, the power, the sovereignty to perform all of these things and that we're in compliance with that glory and will. And so we say amen because we know that God promises to fulfill the prayers of all those who love him in due time. According, those that are according to his will. He will fulfill. You know, beloved, how many times we have focused or how many times we've prayed in an empty manner. We have not ascribed praise to God. Maybe it's because we didn't think God or maybe because we didn't have time. Maybe we feel like we didn't have the time or maybe it felt like that our prayers only go so far off the floor and that it was just, we don't want our prayer life to become an empty ritual. We, We don't want to work through this ceremonial motion of praying to a God that really doesn't exist because he does exist. That's the whole point of the Psalm. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's evident you exist. Your creation is evidence that you exist. And of course, many have tried to rob the church of that fact, that God is creator, that God made everything and God made everything by the word of his power. He made everything in such a way that only he could get credit for it, that only he could be praised for it, only he can be worthy of that praise, right? It's not evolution, even if it's theistic evolution. Why, what would that serve God to create the world in millions of years? How would that serve God? I'm asking. What does praise God is he spoke and it happened. That God speaks a powerful, efficacious word. Remember, we did talk about preaching this morning. God can make things happen by the very words that are used. He can do that because he's that powerful Philippians chapter four and verse six, be careful or be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Well, that's an old way of saying it with supplication and praise. Thanksgiving is praise. That we are to, when we are to when we are praying and we're laying our petitions before God, it is becoming of us to attach praise to them. It's becoming of us to do so. That's why we don't just, um, we don't see, uh, we don't see the world the way Muslims see the world. And we have, a brother here that could speak more to the particulars of Islam, but I can hear to tell you, Islam does not have the view of God, of the Christian view of God. Islam does not see a, 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 a God that is not just full of mercy and grace and truth and all of those things, but because they have a works-related salvation. Their God, Allah, could wake up on the wrong side of the bed any given day. 
Our God is predictably gracious, loving, and merciful to his people. That doesn't mean he doesn't chastise us. He does. We've looked at that in previous Psalms. But that we learn and we normally want to ascribe, as the Psalm says, praise and thanksgiving to God. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. It's obvious. Nature screams to the excellence of God. You can think about all the various arts and sciences and whatnot and notice how, I mean, what is the standard of many of these things? God's natural order. God's creation. Where else are you going to go? You know, it doesn't matter if it's the study of the, of the human person, the body, the DNA, the, the, uh, which, you know, I will tell you this, um, a friend of mine uh, went to church with a, a, a DNA scientist. I mean, that, she was a researcher. And in her office, there was uh, the DNA chain. It went around the whole office and it was, you know, longer than the walls on the office and the office was fa- fairly large. And, um, and he saw this and began to ask and inquire about it. And, and what she told him was staggering. Yeah, she said, you know, with all of this that you see, we only understand about this much of it. It's a small part of the whole DNA strain that we even know about. And so they have something that they call junk DNA. Now, junk DNA doesn't mean that it's trashable. It doesn't mean it's thrown away. It's just a a term that they use as professionals in that line of work to say, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it does. And when, when they come across a, a DNA strain that they don't know what it is. They have to put it over to the side and it still goes over into this category because we don't know. Here's the point. We don't even know the glory of man. How much less the glory of God in though he has manifested himself in every possible way to us. And this revelation of God is huge in nature. Um, the Puritans even called it a book. That was, he said, you know, God has revealed himself in two books. There is the book of nature. And then there's the book of Revelation. Now, you can't from the book of nature ascribe salvation you can't look at the mountains and the lakes and the trees and the, and the sunsets and the sunrises and get saved from that. But you can learn about God from that. And you can learn to ascribe something to that glory. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. So, but let's continue on on this aspect of praise. In the confession itself in chapter 3, and chapter 3 is related to the decrees of God, it speaks of Christians praising God. Now, 
listen to this paragraph. It says, those of mankind that are predestined unto life. God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works our perseverance in either of them or in anything in the creature as conditions are causes moving him thereunto. Wow. I mean, God's not impressed and moved by any of that. But here's the last phrase. And all to the praise of his glorious grace. So when you think about your Christianity, you think about your calling as Christians, it should prompt you to praise him. Why? Because there was nothing in us that moved God to save us outside of himself. Now, when you think that, you think about the praise that we give benefactors who do good, who do good works of charity unprompted or are without asked or for no reason. There's no benefit for them whatsoever. We say, well, that's a good person. Look at what God has done. Look at First Peter chapter one and verse two. It talks about the elect. I know election is not a popular doctrine in Christian churches and what a shame. What a shame that this biblical reality, this biblical truth is spurned by those who benefit from it. But it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. I mean, wow. Look at all of the benefits we have in God electing us. Ephesians chapter one and verse four, according he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You read that and what should we do? Praise God. The confession teaches us when we read these doctrines, when we read these scriptures that is revealing this, this sovereign mercy of God, it says it's becoming a praise. Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. Now, praise is one good work. Praise is a good work. Praise is becoming of a Christian. Praise, yes, is a part of worship, but praise is something that we ought to do. It is becoming of the one who has been elected, one who has been, well, recreated in Christ, if you will, now called God's workmanship. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 
for we are bound to give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul says, oh, he says, even the teachers, right, the apostles, he said, when we see you, when we see what God has done in your life, he called you out of paganism. He's now gifted you with the spirit of God. He's changed your life. And now you are walking in the newness of the Christian walk in the Christian life. That's, that's sanctification. He says, and all of that came through your faith, believing in Christ. We praise God for that. It stimulated Paul and the apostles and these teachers to do what? Praise God that their preaching is not in vain. That's not the only thing we ought to praise God about. The paragraph on decrees goes further and says not only should God be praised for his, well, free grace, his free mercy, but he also ought to be praised for his justice when he punishes the wicked. Not that, listen, you're not praising the torment of the wicked. You're praising God who's consistent with his attributes of justice. You're praising God because he's just. The Bible says that God will by no means clear the guilty. That's the motivation to send people fleeing to Christ, isn't it? Uh, turn in your Bible to Jude 4. I want to look at a hard text of Scripture, one that's really... I think mostly misunderstood, but for our purposes, I think it'd be good to look at it. Jude 4, verse 4. Uh, Jude writes, he says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. He's talking about into the fellowship of the church. Those who uh, were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and to deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, some people will read that verse and they'll say, you see, that proves that God is, is a, a very unloving God. There are those that, are, that, that, that want to be saved and they can't be saved because they're not elect. That's not what this verse teaches. What this verse teaches is two things. There's a practical side of it, the side that is visible, and then there is the eternal side of it. But notice the practical side. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. The word crept in unnoticed is not a good term. It's a negative term to sneak in, to come in through deceitful, uh, through deceitfulness. That's not a righteous, those are not righteous things. Those are wicked things. That is, these 
people are dedicated to wickedness. They're dedicated to unrighteousness, dedicated to, to what? Their licentiousness. And so they creep in. They are, um, again, they are deceitful. They creep in unnoticed. Those who, now, now here's the secret side. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly people. What he's saying is that these people have snuck in to, to, to upheave the church, to, to cause problems in the church, to take advantage of the church, and they have proven themselves to be godless and wicked. When you take, listen brothers, not all sins are equal. It's a greater sin to manipulate a child than it is me. I should have some sense about me. I should be able to kind of see through things. But children are naive. They're very trusting. And when an adult takes advantage of that, it's a greater sin. Now, let's... let's Let's translate that over to churches. Churches, by and large, are very naive, trusting. These men took advantage of their willingness to accept them, their willingness to bring them in, to have them become part of the church. And these men, it, the degree of their wickedness was displayed in that they were never true to begin with. They were usurpers and they crept in like snakes and they were unnoticed because they took advantage of the naivete and the charity of God's people. From God's perspective, he says, oh, they're destroying themselves. And so they are marked out for destruction. Now, it's hard for those people to come to Christ. When you hate Christ and you think Christ is a mockery, listen to me. I, I've worked around people that, that would blaspheme God's name on purpose just to see me cringe. Would say vile things about Jesus because I didn't like it. And they laughed. When that person has that view of God, how can they be saved? How would they ever be saved? From a human perspective, we know, right? How can you turn to the very thing that you hate and despise and mock? Now, you say, well, Paul, Paul persecuted the church in ignorance. Paul thought he was serving God when he persecuted the church. Paul thought that the church, the Christians were the usurpers. He thought they were the blasphemers. And Paul said, yes, I, I, I admit I persecuted God's church, but I did it in ignorance and Christ forgave me. I want to say this. When you talk about praising God and you talk about blaspheming God, these two these two different things, they're antithetical to one another. It's both are serious. Praise God with a heart that you mean it. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. 
And people need to be careful how they speak about God and how they speak about Christ and how they, and we've, well, that's why you can have, I use this as an example, but it's, I'm not picking on them. But I know you've seen it. Many of you have seen this where now we will applaud and say, oh, I can't wait to have more abortions. I can't wait to kill my baby. See, we used to shy away and go, oh, we can't call it murder. Well, then we started doing that. People started getting bold and they started to say, hey, this is murder. And you know what they started doing? I don't care. I want to murder my baby. You can see the downslide. You can see the downgrade. You can see the spiraling out. And you can see that that's the concept of when you turn your back on God, when you walk away from him, when you're not praising him, but rather cursing him, you were destroying yourself. Let's turn to Romans 1. I mean, Romans 1 is certainly a, a, a complement to Psalm 8. Uh, look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which was, through that, through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkening, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures, and you can read God gave them over to their lust. Now let's just begin unpacking some of these verses all related to how majestic is the Lord our God and his creation in all the earth. Well, first of all, notice how clear God's revelation in nature is. It's clear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, beloved, you don't suppress something you don't know. Suppression is an active work. It's you suppress those, the things you know. This is a description of what the ungodly are doing. These unrighteous men, what do they do? They suppress what? The truth. They suppress the truth. The truth about God in what way? The truth about God that's revealed in nature. 
And what do they suppress? How do they suppress this truth? Look at the end of verse 18. They suppress it in unrighteousness. They use unrighteous ways to suppress the truth about God in his creation. And look at verse 19, he tells us why. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. They know these things. For God made it evident to them. Who, who told them these things or who revealed these things to them? God did. God did. They don't like it. What God has revealed to them, they are suppressing. They are rejecting it through suppression and unrighteousness. Now, that could be the suppression of the doctrine of creation with evolution. That could be the suppression of God in creation and embracing atheism, agnosticism, or any number of other ways not to acknowledge God and it didn't acknowledge God is to see his finger and hand and power in his creation. Now, I think this is, you know, we talk about presuppositional apologetics and I'm all for it, but this is also evidence. There is an inherent truth that God has revealed about himself that is obvious to all men everywhere. That's the starting place. God is. That's the starting place. But think about this. Nowhere in the Bible is there an argument for God. Nowhere. The Bible assumes God. The Bible just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't then go to uh, equivocating. Moses does not begin to equivocate, well, what that is or what that means. No, Moses just begins to write under the inspiration of the Spirit and sets forth the reality, God made everything you see. And you don't like it. And those who don't like it suppress that reality, that truth and unrighteousness, lies. Lying is an unrighteous act. Acting at something else is, is true when it's not is a lie. That's what evolution is. Evolution is a lie. And we could talk about macro and micro evolution. And I'm all for those kinds of conversations because we're not anti-science, are we? But we are certainly pro-God and pro-truth. And science is nothing more than a handmaiden. The biologies or the chemistry and those types of science are nothing more than handmaidens to theology. Let that always be first. So he goes on, he says in verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, that is way back then, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Notice, clearly seen. Obvious. This is not a secret. Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You know, atheism is fairly new in the history of the world, really. I mean, it's a thing now. I mean, before it was all what? False religions. 
Before it was, it was man naturally creating, you know, uh, be, uh, being observant and just miscalculating and misunderstanding because he was darkened in his understanding. And he, so he worshiped the mountains. He worshiped the sun. He worshiped the moon. He worshiped the stars. Or he worshiped the sea creatures. He worshiped the, the birds of the air because, again, he didn't know what to do with that revelation, but he knew that it was something that there was some divinity to it, that there was some, some power. It just didn't come out of nothing. Well, again, a fairly new concept. It just didn't just create itself, so to speak. God brought it out of nothing. And of course, you have to go back to the very beginning of the world when man fell and you have Cain and his tribe and his people and all of his descendants, and they begin what? Well, they didn't put away worship. They just created worship in their own image. Cain never stopped worshiping God. Cain believed in God. He just worshiped God the way he wanted to. That was the problem, wasn't it? Cain wanted it the way he wanted it, and God rejected it. They are without excuse. And brothers and sisters, this is why and I remember, I, I remember this so clearly. I remember being a young Christian and, and being confronted with the doctrine of election. And I was bothered by it. I was like, what? What are you talking about? God, I mean, I was an Arminian. I didn't understand. I was ignorant of a lot of things. I knew I put my faith in Christ. I knew that. I knew I needed to put my faith in Christ. I knew I was a sinner. I, I trusted in Christ. But that was about the limits of what I understood. And when I began to be confronted with these things, I was, I, I, at first I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that don't sound biblical. And that certainly don't sound like love. And I remember bringing up to people, well, what, about the island? what about the person over there in the jungle? What about the person over there on the island? What about the person over there on the mountaintops in Tibet nobody ever talks to? This verse answers that question. This verse says, beloved, that there will be no one stand before God without an excuse. Or there will be no one that will stand before God with an excuse not to believe in him. For they are without excuse. I mean... I, Atheists are going to stand before God on judgment day and they're going to go, but, but, but Lord, uh, Lord, uh, your church is pitiful and, and I, I couldn't look at them and believe in you. I, I, condemned, condemned. I showed you who I was. I revealed to you in the works of creation my glory and my sovereign hand. And you, you rejected it and you denied it. Judgment. It can be the agnostic. 
I wasn't convinced. I wasn't sure. I'm not opposed to it, but I just wasn't, you know, I uh, just didn't have that, that other puzzle piece, he says, condemned. I showed it to you. And I, I want you here, Christians, to think. You have the doctrine of creation. Are you praising God for it? Are you thankful for it? You look around, you see a sunset, you're like, pray, praise God. You, you, you see the blue skies. You see the rain come upon the ground that's, that needs it. You, you, praise God. Look, look at this beauty. Praise God. I, I saw this. I don't know if it's true. Maybe I'm being naive about it, but it was a picture. A person set up a camera and uh, I don't know all the technical things. I'm not going to be able to explain it to you. But anyway, it basically it would take a picture of the sun every day of the year. And if when that happened, the shape in the movement of the sun, the route it took was the sign of infinity. The heavens declare thy glory. It's everywhere. In verse 21, we'll finish this and it'll be as far as we get this afternoon, he says, for then they knew, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. There's that word. Look, give thanks. What is he talking about? They didn't praise him for it. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Let me say this about verse 21. What happens when we, when we, interact with God's revelation in nature and we fail to praise him for it, to acknowledge him, to honor him. Well, it's a negative effect. They became over time. This is what the verb means. That over time, what happened to them? They became foolish in their speculations. They refused to give honor to God. They refused to honor him as God. They refused to give thanks to him, to praise him as God. And over time, they became futile in their speculations. What's this mean? What's he talking about in their speculations? They became futile in their speculate. in their, here's how this got here. Here's where this mountain range come from. Here's where the sun happened. This is where the solar system actually happened. Two asteroids collided together. They became futile in their what the Bible calls speculation, their guesswork, and foolish, and their foolish heart was darkened. Why? The foolish heart is the heart that doesn't believe in God, doesn't accept God. God is, beloved. God is. And God doesn't need you or me to prove his existence. That's not our job. Our job is to proclaim his existence. 
Our God, our job is to do the same thing that nature does. Proclaim his power and excellence. And especially to sinners who are in need of saving, we proclaim Christ to them. And that's why, listen, that's why John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. It parallels creation. The same marvelous God that made the world is the same marvelous God that sent his son as a revelation into the world for salvation. That's beautiful. I don't care how you see it or don't see it. That's beautiful. That's parallelism. That's helping us see the scriptures and understand the glory of God. But we don't stop there. We can't stop there. So we go back. There's so much I want to say about this. We go back to Psalm 8. And we like David says, O Lord Jehovah Adonai, our covenant God, our Lord, our master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. For you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Wow. We cannot stop at knowledge Knowledge is to produce praise. Beloved, it's becoming of you to praise God and it's becoming of you to improve in praising God. Let's pray. And Father, there are no doubt a dozen other scriptures we can turn to to aid us and to help us ascribe prayer to you as the God of creation. But we have just, just touched it tonight or this afternoon and we ask, oh Lord, that you would set in motion even in our thoughts how we can look at this, how we should see it. And how we can progress in our study of the word of God. How we can read it now and, and see its parts and pieces. But yet they all are like an orchestra to your glory. And, and aid us in praising you and worship you. So Father be with us and this day, the rest of this day may we as best we can and are able in your providence to meditate, reflect upon these things. And Lord, just continue to enhance our ability to truly praise you in, in both heart and mind and, and in both outward of the raising of our hands, our eyes to you, looking up into heaven and our lips, our words, the things we say. Now, Father, we are yours and we are yours by 
grace and mercy by by saving us in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, even now, in our hearts especially, praise you. It's in Christ's name we ask these things and that we, Lord, have these things. Amen and amen.